I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You know how in, mm, let's go with 90% of romantic movies, there's a part where the guy drops everything and rushes off to get the girl back? Maybe he's never told her his true feelings and she's about to marry someone else. Or maybe they've had a falling out and he runs through the airport only to catch her just as she's about to disappear through the departure gate. Well, in 2002, when Bob Kerr was 22, he was this guy. Except for him, the credits didn't conveniently start to roll the moment after he caught up with the girl. His movie kept on going. And it kind of went off script from there. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Dog Project. Today, we've got two stories about revisiting the cringier parts of your past with fresh eyes. Up first, Bob Kerr, with a story about why rom-coms usually end when they do, right after the grand romantic gesture. Here's Bob. Before I get into what happened to me, let's examine one of those romantic movies, just for comparison's sake. I offer you the 1989 John Hughes film, Say Anything. Even if you haven't seen it, you at least know the iconic scene of John Cusack in a trench coat, standing with a boombox over his head. It's one of the most ultimate romantic gestures in cinema history. But the movie is more than just a guy bothering the neighborhood with his stereo. So here's Say Anything in a Nutshell. And I'd say, spoiler alert, but come on, it's been 31 years. You've had your chance. So John Cusack, a.k.a. Lloyd Dobler, meets Ione Skye, a.k.a. Diane Court. I wanted to ask you, how'd how'd you get Diane Court to go out with you? I called her up! But how come it worked? I mean, like, what are you? I'm Lloyd Dobler. Lloyd gets Diane. Lloyd loses Diane. Lloyd holds the boombox blaring Peter Gabriel while Diane lies in bed. Lloyd and Diane get back together, and Lloyd follows her to England, where she's won some big scholarship. Nobody thought we'd do this. Nobody really thinks it will work, do they? No. We just described every great success story. Roll credits. The happily ever after is implied, but I don't buy it. I've often wondered what becomes of Lloyd and Diane after the credits roll, when they actually land in England. Diane will be spending much of her time at school learning to be a doctor or a lawyer or a Mensa branch president. And Lloyd does what exactly? Yeah, Lloyd, what are your plans for the future? Um... 
I don't know. I've, I've <clears throat> thought about this quite a bit, sir, and I, I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. Um, so what I've been doing lately is kickboxing, which is a um, new sport, but I think it's got a good future. So maybe he teaches kickboxing, but do they even have kickboxing in England? Then what? I'll tell you what. They get a shoebox apartment. Lloyd starts arguing with Diane that she's never home, or when she is home, she's studying. Diane gets mad because Lloyd does nothing 14 hours a day, and his kickboxing equipment takes up 30% of the apartment. Diane's thinking about her future, and Lloyd has yet to grow up. Like an elastic band, they're stretched further and further apart until... Snap. Diane breaks up with Lloyd again, and Lloyd is sent packing, home to Nowhere, USA, where he's back living with his sister and nephew, working at the Piggly Wiggly on weekends. Which would mean that the movie Say Anything only had a happy ending because of one grand romantic gesture. Lloyd standing there, trench coat trenching, boombox aloft, Peter Gabriel blaring, Diane wooed. Which brings me to my own story, and why I can confidently tell you that some sweeping romantic gestures maybe should remain unswept. It's the summer of 2002, almost 20 years ago. I'm graduating from the comedy program at Humber College in Toronto, and that's where I meet Zoe. Zoe is quirky and free-spirited. She's slightly shorter than I am and has short red hair. Her face is dappled with light brown freckles. Her smile is radiant and kind. For most of the year, I had only seen her in passing, but near graduation, after several conversations, something clicks. Yeah, well, you were always funny, and you were intelligent. Meet Zoe. This is the second time we've talked in over 10 years. The first time was to set up the Zoom call. And I think those are really important things, like to be able yeah. to talk with somebody on on an intelligent level. And you were cute. I was cute. Yeah. If you've seen enough romantic movies, you know that the girl usually falls for the funny guy. I'm here with Lloyd Dobler. How did that happen? He made me laugh. So these two young kids, Zoe and Bob, hit it off almost immediately. Cue the whirlwind romantic montage. Here we are running hand in hand through a rainstorm, sharing one milkshake with two straws, taking funny photos of each other. Actually, we really do that last one. Zoe makes me sit in a garbage can at Woodbine Mall with my face poking out from the plastic lid. Everything is perfect. I even get along with Zoe's sister, Cappy. Oh, Bob, you were my favorite. And I have been super vocal with Zoe about that for years and years. Just like that, I fall heart over heels into my first real relationship. After dating for less than a month, 
Zoe and I find an apartment in downtown Toronto and move in together. This was not only the first time I was living with a romantic partner, it was the first time I was renting an apartment, period. It's exciting, scary, intense. Zoe and I are about to embark on a road full of possibilities. At least that's how it seems to me. Because I don't even remember us living together. Fair enough. I mean, the apartment itself was not spectacular. But this is my flashback, so I'll keep going. It's a one-bedroom apartment perched atop a defunct restaurant. It's a tiny sweltering hotbox with no air conditioning, and we share a bedroom wall with an elderly couple who loudly bicker all the time. Luckily, we're two crazy kids with our heads in the clouds. But that doesn't last. Roughly a month into our fledgling romance, Zoe's mom is diagnosed with cancer. After spending a week in our sauna of an apartment, Zoe goes back to her hometown of Blythe, Ontario, to be with her family. I, and I remember, like, my sister and I were coming back from Toronto when we stopped and bought her some flowers, and we talked about how this was going to be a long road, but, you know... We were going to help her as much as we could. And then if anybody could beat it, she would be the one because she was such a strong person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that isn't in the cards. And then I, I remember it, it kind of hitting me like a load of bricks when we went in the one day we went in um, and the doctors kind of took us aside into the room and told us that it was terminal and she had days to live. And I remember feeling like, what? <laughs> It was never even a thought that she was going to die. Mm -hmm. We all thought that, you know, she'd just power through it like she did with everything else. And, and then four days later when the doctor came in and said, there is no hope. It was just pure desolation. One day during this time, I call and her father answers. Zoe isn't home. He tells me the doctors gave Zoe's mother a week to live. I hang up. And then I look at my car keys. In my mind, Zoe needs me now more than ever. This is my first big test in boyfriendhood. To be her shoulder to cry on. Her rock. I could imagine Zoe holding me tight and saying something like, Thank God you're here. You truly are the best boyfriend a girl could want. My brain screams at me. You have to go to her. I scoop up my keys, pack a few clothes, and without telling anyone, not even Zoe, I leave for Blythe. In retrospect, I would have urged that 22-year-old, emotionally immature brain to take a moment, to think more about what I was going to do, and whether I was in any way up to the task. Because what I'm about to do will lead to a series of events so personally humiliating, so defining of the brash stupidity of my youth, that I've been haunted by them for the past 20 years of my life. So when I finally get there, it's around midnight. I was happy that you were there because you were my support person at that time. And... It meant that you cared about me, that you had come. Boom. Roll credits, right? Except 
No. I mean, I was probably annoyed <laughs> because I was annoyed at everything. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, confused. Like, I didn't really know what to do because we'd never had to deal with this before. So. Yeah. But I mean, you did what you were supposed to do as a boyfriend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Zoe and I spend the night at Cappy's boyfriend's basement apartment on a pull-out couch. When I wake up the next morning, Zoe's gone. That's when Cappy's boyfriend gives me the news. Their mother has passed away. She died in the night. We end up driving to the house to find a family bereft with shock and sorrow. I, for one, am totally confused. I thought the doctors gave her a week. What happened? Her passing was expected, but... Not this soon. And this is where your romantic hero kind of starts to come up short. I sit by, totally at a loss for what to do. I ask Zoe what I can do, and she suggests I make some tea. I'm grateful just to have something, anything, to keep busy for five minutes. Then a new character is introduced to the scene. Zoe's ex-boyfriend shows up. We'll call him Don. How, how would you compare me and Don? At that point in your life? Sure, yes. It's <sighs> oh, a good question. It's a really good question because you're two very, very different people. And honestly, well, it, again, don't be worried about... I'm not, I'm not worried. I just don't yeah. know how to put it into words. Sure. Uh, like physically, and I don't know, like... Um, What Zoe is delicately not saying is that I am skinny and puny and pale and weak. I may have the muscle mass of 1%, and I'm being generous in that estimate. Don, however, is none of those things. Here's Zoe's sister. Uh, Cappy, if you had to describe Don or, or, uh, you know, cast someone famous to play Don in a movie... (laughs) <laughs> Who would you say that person would be? Oh, man, I'm terrible with names of famous people. Um, who's the guy that... Uh, ah, boo. He was in uh, tr- uh, True Detective. Did you know that? Did you see that show? Oh, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. <laughs> kind of strange. Like, he might be dangerous. Well, of course I'm dangerous. Okay. <laughs> How would you have described me? Like, is there... Yeah. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Maybe... John Cusack? There you have it. Except I'd probably have collapsed under the weight of a boombox. And there's lots of physical work to do around the yard to get it ready for a small private service at the house so don and i had very much a history and he had been around my family for a very long time so it was very important to him to come and help do this and he had known my mom and and etc etc and yeah he's a workhorse so we now have two romantic leads Don is a tan, fit, hard-working country boy, very sure of himself. I, on the other hand, am a literal starving artist, desperate for approval, who has barely worked a day in his life. Fun fact, 
I've been known to boast about how soft my hands are. Physically, you are not able to do the things that someone your age should have been able to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And then Dawn was totally capable of doing those things and took the leadership role. As you could probably predict, Don immediately makes himself useful in all the Matthew McConaughey-est of ways. He's out there cleaning up the yard, moving great quantities of soil around, hunking it up. Things don't go so well for me. I remember us uh, being at my dad's house. I remember a whole bunch of people showed up to, I think it was build a deck or put gravel down or something like that because we were going to have, mom was going to come out to the house. And that's when I remember being annoyed with you because you, the thing that sticks out to me in my mind is I remember you had to come in and have a nap. Great. Of all the things Zoe remembers, of course it's the nap. You couldn't shovel gravel anymore. And in my mind, that came as a weakness. Uh, To me, it was like, oh, my boyfriend is weak. He can't help do the stuff that needs to be done for this. With Don obviously gaining points with Zoe, I decide that perhaps I can curry her favor in the domestic sphere. So I busy myself inside the house, washing dishes and wiping down windows. At one point, as I drag a freshly torn bounty sheet against a freshly sprayed glass, I look through the window and see a shirtless Don hefting an axe down onto thick cords of wood, splitting them in two as the sun glints off his sweaty muscles. I mean, my job is demanding too. I could get Windex in my eye. In retrospect, I probably should have thrown in the paper towel right then and there. But opportunity knocks. Someone needs to drive to the closest proper town, which is 45 minutes away, to pick up the dry cleaning for the funeral. Seeing as the windows are sparkling, the dishes are draining, and Don has the whole landscaping situation well in hand, I eagerly volunteer. I'm looking forward to having some time to myself to clear my head and regroup on my next strategy here. But then Zoe says to her grandmother, you want to go for a ride? Bob will take you. I love my grandma very much. She was difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, She was very needy. If someone's not paying attention to her constantly, uh, then she just, people just want to wring her neck. God Mm -hmm. bless her soul. Though my plans of solitude are diffused, I see this as yet another opportunity. Winning over Zoe's grandma. If Zoe's grandma loves me, then surely it'll put me in the good books with Zoe. It's a no-brainer. My track record with old people is spotless. Because we wanted her out of our hair. Yeah, so we gave her to you. After several of us helped Zoe's grandmother into the passenger seat of my car... I take off, wondering what the hell I'm going to talk to this elderly stranger about. Not a bad day out, huh? Silence. Do you want the window up or down? Up. 
How about the radio? You want the radio on? No. What follows is 90 minutes of uncomfortable silence, punctuated by unsuccessful bursts of me trying to break the ice. I talk about Zoe and her family, how I really like everyone. I talk about my upbringing. I talk about comedy. Much of this is met by silence. When Zoe's grandmother does talk, it doesn't exactly ease the tension. At one point, she characterizes Elvis Presley as satanic, But then later, when I ask her what kind of music she likes, she lists Elvis Presley. It's the longest 90 minutes of my life. Later, Zoe tells me that when she asked her grandmother if she enjoyed the trip with me, she said, he just kept fishing for compliments. Ooh boy, swing and a miss. The day of the funeral arrives. Since I was in such a hurry to be Zoe's knight in shining armor, it didn't occur to me that I should maybe bring a suit. I had to borrow one from her bereaved dad. I even used his shaver. By this time, I couldn't possibly feel any further away from the romantic hero I had set out to be. I'm more of a liability in an ill-fitting suit. But I also know that the only thing worse than me awkwardly staying would be for me to go. At the funeral, I sit in the pews, on my own, trying my best to blend in. But as people read poems and eulogies, I can barely pay attention. I'm too busy feeling incredibly, disgustingly sorry for myself. All I can think is, what are the odds that I fall for someone whose mother dies and kills the mood entirely? Why me? As I sit there playing my own tiny violin, Zoe, Cappy, and their brother Tegan step up with their actual violins. Do you remember what you played? Canon in D. I've heard Canon in D a hundred times before, but in this context, it breaks me. I see Zoe standing there with her brother and sister, her eyes sad and focused on the violin's fingerboard while her mother lays behind her in a casket. I think of our relationship. Cue the romantic montage. There we are lying in bed, watching Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Now we're taking off on a road trip where she pops in a Prozac CD and sings at the top of her lungs. Now we're playing music together. Me on guitar, her on violin and vocals. And I realize that it's all over. I bury my face in my hands and cry. I can only imagine family members looking over at this quivering, sobbing mess in a suit that's too big for him and elbowing each other, whispering, Who is that guy? I still remember this as one of the saddest moments in my entire life. For Zoe's sister, Cappy, her head was in a different space entirely. And uh, when we were teenagers, I played more than Tegan Zoe did as well. So whenever we performed together um, at that time, I, there was always this terrified part of me that <laughs> one of them was going to do something terrible, or, like mess it up. And how was I going to 
Uh, like I always had, I was always prepared in my brain of like, okay, well if he messes that up, I can play with him for two bars. And then if right. she messes that up, I can. <laughs> there was that weird feeling. It was just totally not what I should be thinking about at my mother's funeral. No. <laughs> but that it was just a good. It was a good illustration of where my brain was at. It was totally focused on myself. <laughs> and as for Zoe, of the day of my, my mom's funeral, I remember my sister falling and spilling all the roses while taking them out to the garden. Okay. I remember having a conversation with a neighbor woman at the barbecue about how I was an ugly baby. Uh, Yeah, random. Uh, Yeah. But other than that, I don't have memories of it. We were all starring in different scenes. And I was probably the last character who actually deserved one. After the burial, I drive Zoe back home. I drop her off, say goodbye, and go back to our sweltering, sticky apartment in Toronto, alone. Two weeks later, Zoe breaks up with me. Um, do, you, do you feel like... Um that this was this this event was a turning point in our relationship oh yeah 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 can you uh sort of elaborate on that uh yeah um it was a turning point in that uh I saw you as weak and I couldn't get that out of my head. And it wasn't what I was looking for at that point in my life. And it wasn't that I don't love you. Right. Mm -hmm. I just, it wasn't in my head. It wasn't what I wanted anymore. But then I felt really bad. And I knew that you had tried very, very hard to be a part of what was going on in my life and be the the fantastic boyfriend and and do all of that kind of stuff. And then it ended poorly. Going back a little bit, do you remember when you told me you loved me? No. Okay. It was was pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And... I remember not returning that because mm-hmm. I, I was like, how can you know? I remember saying that. How can you know that? <laughs> Which is like, it, it was the first time in my relationship. Uh, I probably responded poorly, but do you remember when I told you I loved you? <laughs> no. Okay. But can you tell me? Sure. Um, we might have been driving to your mother's burial or from your mother's burial. And Mm -hmm. I remember saying, I love you. I think on the last day that I was there, there was love there and I felt for your family so much. But the other part was trying to, on some level, trying to preserve or Mm -hmm. get some of that relationship back, but you did not return it. And that's when I knew, that's when I knew for sure that the relationship was not long. That was a moment. 
I had been haunted by this memory for so long, not just because of the embarrassing moments or the times where I was lesser than, but because it was hard for me to confront. Um, and I feel bad about that because I, I sprung it on you at a very vulnerable time for you as well, you know. Well, I wouldn't feel bad about it. When we're in that stage, yeah. it's not like people talked about what was going on. Like now... If, if I said I love you to my husband and he didn't say I love you back, I'd be like, what? Why? What's going on? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I mean, in all, honest, in all honesty, I didn't talk about that stuff. I didn't want the conflict. And I felt badly. It's interesting. When I think back on our relationship, I blame myself. And it turns out Zoe's been doing the same thing. I didn't do relationships well. I had to learn how to do relationships well. So I do look back on our relationship with regret because I do feel like, not that I thought we would have stayed together forever, but I do think that we would have been uh, better with each other had we talked more had I been truthful with you about how I was actually feeling. And I, and I do, and I guess that's it. I just look back with regret that I wasn't able to talk to you about what I was actually feeling at that time. Over the years, I look back on this whole chapter with regret that I was a hapless doofus who crashed an intimate family moment and lost the girl in the process. Now that I'm older in a loving relationship, and more comfortable in my own skin, I'm realizing that I need to forgive that kid. There's a catharsis in talking to Zoe two decades later. The moments we share together play out like scenes in a movie. It's something we can both laugh about and reflect on with honesty. That's one of the gifts about getting older. Talking to Zoe now, I'm surprised that she barely remembers any of it. Because I don't even remember us living together. Do you remember when you told me you loved me? No. When I told you I loved you? <laughs> No. But more than that, it turns out it wasn't ever as bad as I remembered it being. Sure, I had some physical limitations and couldn't shovel gravel all day, but what could I do about that? Shovel gravel until I'm paralyzed from the neck down? Then who would do all the dishes? And it turns out that as much as I've remembered the more humiliating scenes of this story, I also forgot some of my finer moments. Here's Cappy. The biggest memory that I have of you at that time is there was this um, ceremony that we had sort of at our house in the garden. Remember Don shoveling gravel while I slunk away to take a nap? It was to get the garden ready for this private ceremony to happen after the funeral service. The family members had requested that extra people not be there at that ceremony, at the, the private ceremony at the house. Mm -hmm. So you waited in your car at the end of the laneway while we did it. Do you remember that? No. And I must I thought that was really cool. Because because the other significant others just didn't show up. Right? They were told not to go and so they didn't show up. And you did. If I squint my eyes, I can kind of see it. The skinny, frail boyfriend gazing at a touching family ceremony from down the long driveway through the insect-spattered windshield of his 95 Dodge Spirit. I mean, 
I'll take it. Thirteen years later, my father died of cancer. And I found myself in the same position Zoe and Cappy were in when their mom died. And all the chaos and confusion that went with it. Like, I desperately wanted to come to your dad's funeral. But I thought in my head, I was like, what are you doing? You're not a part of his life anymore. And there's probably somebody else there that is a part of his life. She's right. At that time, my current partner, Lara, and I had been together for two and a half months. Lara came to my dad's celebration of life, but she was nervous about being there. And it brought me back to how nervous I felt standing on Zoe's doorstep, wondering what the hell I was even doing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a good thing I didn't show up. Because <laughs> I, I would have I mean, been, I would have been Dawn, right? I would have been Dawn. <laughs> Dawn, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good thing. I get what Zoe means, but I don't know. It would have been nice to see her at my dad's funeral. Maybe we could have had these conversations a little earlier. And also, Lara would have been fine. I mean, she's great at yard work. So I guess now's the part of the movie where we freeze frame on each character in the story and tell the audience what they're up to. Cappy. Remember how she was focused so intently on her siblings not screwing up during their performance at the funeral? Yes, performance, yes, but I'm mostly doing uh, music lessons, private violin and singing classes. What about Zoe? It's uh, uh, unexpected. My life had been sort of turned upside down because the second year there, my mom died Mm -hmm. and uh, came home and waited tables and that kind of stuff and just did whatever. And then... Mm -hmm. uh, one of my girlfriends said, you know what, you're a real people person, you should check funeral service out. And it was a huge departure from anything. These days, Zoe runs a funeral home not far from her hometown of Blythe. You may be wondering about Don. I have no idea what happened to him. Maybe he owns his own landscaping business. Or a CrossFit facility. Maybe he's lifting cars off people. Who cares? Let's move on. As for me... In the 20 years Zoe and I haven't spoken, we both seem to have learned how to be true to ourselves and to those we love. It's exactly how I changed the game for myself when I met Lara. With the help of therapy and several self-help books, I worked hard to be open and honest with her in a way that I never had been with anyone else. It's how I'm still with her today. As Zoe puts it, we're better with each other. Do I still cringe when I think of the person I was when Zoe's mom died and I tried to save the day? A day that was never possible to save? A day that was never about me to begin with? Absolutely. But come on. That's exactly the kind of crazy gesture you could expect from a classic romantic leading man type like me. Now, if you'll excuse me, Lara has some windows for me to wipe down. Bob Kerr. That story was written and produced by Bob and Jennifer Warren. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe, featuring Sweet, Sweet Jams by Peter Gabriel. To 
see photos of Bob and Zoe together in the heyday of their young relationship, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. Coming up, one of my favorite stories from the Doc Project vaults. It's also featuring two people talking to each other for the first time in about two decades with comedic and, at times, poignant results. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. In 1999, Pasha Mala spent a year on a study abroad program in Adelaide, Australia. In that entire year, he made one Australian friend, a guy named Mark Trenwith. At the end of that year, the two friends made a strange trade. This is the story of that trade. The last time Pasha and Mark spoke was back then. This is them saying hi for the first time in almost two decades. Is that Mark? Yeah. Hey, man. Hey. It's been a while. I, I know. <laughs> was it like 19 years or something? I think it's been about that, yep. Yeah, wow. How, how have you been? What's, <laughs> what have you been doing? <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, kind of like um, clown doctor sort of work. Clown doctor? You know, like Patch Adams? Uh-huh. Oh, like you Is work that... in hospitals with kids and you're the clown. Yeah, yeah, but we're, uh, we're superheroes. Just to clarify, Patch Adams is a doctor who dresses up as a clown. Mark is not a doctor. He's a clown doctor. He dresses up and goes to hospitals to cheer up kids. In addition to being a superhero clown doctor, Mark also runs a theater company for kids called Mr. Snotbottom. But Mark's main gig is that he's a stand-up comedian. And Pasha is a writer. Right. So these guys haven't spoken for 19 years. And I swear, as soon as I get them on the line together, it's like they pick up exactly where they left off. They start telling me stories about each other. Actually, that's not quite it. They weren't telling their stories to me. It's more that they were telling stories about each other to each other. Mark tells this story about how one time, Pasha put up posters around the university declaring he was the fastest man on campus. Pasha was almost certainly not the fastest man on campus, but he did promise to race anybody who would challenge him. One guy actually took him up on the offer, but the night before the race, Pasha conveniently hurt his ankle. He swears the injury was legitimate. I wanted to race, but I really did. I broke my ankle. Mark also told this other story that happened near the end of Pasha's year in Australia. Your flight was leaving after your rent ran out. Yeah. So you had an extra week or so. Yeah. So you tried to get free accommodation in a random room on campus 
if you declared yourself a human art exhibition, yeah, just I said so it was a, save on rent. That's right. I said it was a performance art piece where I'd be living in the in this room, <laughs> and they it was all okayed. And then in the end, I think I changed my flight and just left. And this is the part where the strange trade comes in. Just before Pasha left Australia, he and Mark struck a deal. He doesn't remember all the details exactly, but he says it went something like this. Mark and I were saying our teary-eyed goodbyes, and he, like, clutching me in his arms, said, you tell me one story, you're the most important thing about yourself, and I'll tell you mine, and we shall never tell our own stories again and tell each other's until we are dead. You get all that? Mark tells Pasha his favorite story about himself, and Pasha tells Mark his favorite story about himself. And the deal is that they both stop telling their own story and, from then on, only tell each other's story. And it's not that they pretend that the other guy's story happened to them. They just get to tell his story. It's almost as if their stories had deeds, and they traded those deeds. So, they swap stories, Pasha flies back to Canada, Mark stays in Australia, and 19 years pass, during which the guys don't talk to each other. Until now. So, who wants to go first? Mark, do you want to tell Pasha's story? Yeah, you tell my KFC. I'm interested to see your version of what this might be. And I wonder, I mean, it's impossible to know, but I wonder if your version would be more accurate than the version I would tell now, because my version (laughs) is based on a memory that would have changed and changed again based on who I would like to be, right? Pasha is clearly ready to unpack all this right away. We will get there. But first, story. Here's Mark. Okay, so it's exam week and uh, Pasha's been cramming. It's also a public holiday. He's had no sleep. And because it's a public holiday, there's like nothing open. He's got no food in the house. And it's like 10 o'clock at night and he's starving. The only place that's opened is a KFC on campus or just off of campus. And so he gets there and like everyone's got like the same idea. So it's packed. And he's uh, he's ordered a chicken burger. Um, I'm not sure if it's original recipe or zinger. Um, I guess under the circumstance, it's probably a zinger. He places his order and he's waiting there for like an hour because there's only like two people working there. There's this one girl in the front of the counter who can barely speak any English. And there's just this guy trying to make everyone orders, just one person out the back in the kitchen. And uh, he's been waiting for like an hour. And finally, he can see the guy making his burger. And suddenly out of nowhere, this like huge busload of uh, high school students just rock up. They just flood the restaurant, to which Pasha sees the guy in the kitchen just take off his apron and just leave. But this girl is taking everybody's orders and Pasha's trying to explain, no, 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 like, that's, that's my burger. No one's making the burgers. No one's making the burgers. And she's, like, not listening to him. She's taking everyone's orders, taking everyone's orders. The line's huge. And Pasha's just, like, starting to lose his mind. Going, but that, that my burger's there. Can you just get my burger? I can see it just there. Can you just get it? And, just, and she's just, she won't cooperate. So he just, he loses it. He jumps over the counter to which she freaks out. And Pasha grabs his burger is about to run out when someone has called security because everyone thinks he's trying to hold up this KFC, right? So they uh, security nab him and uh, Ash is trying to explain himself. Like, I'm not trying to rob the place. I'm not trying to rob it. I just, I'm just starving. I'm tired. I just wanted my burger. I've been there for an hour. <laughs> to which the security guard goes, an hour? That's not very fast food, is it? 
and they decide to let him go on the uh, condition that he doesn't make a habit of doing this. <laughs> like, as if the next thing Pash is going to do is, like, go straight to McDonald's and, like, inconveniently order a burger with no success. <laughs> so that's my memory of the story. How close is he? Is he, uh, has he got yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty accurate. This is, like, you know, almost 20 years later. You, you got all the key details. It's pretty amazing. Actually, it's really amazing. Remember what Pasha said earlier when he wondered if Mark would remember some of his story better than he did? Well, that happened. That killer line that the security guard came out with. That's not very fast food, is it? Pasha had forgotten that part even happened. thing that I'd forgotten is the amazing line that the security guy said. But Mark remembered. So, points to Mark. And now it is Pasha's turn. Oh, now I have to tell Mark's uh, Michael Jackson story. So Mark, as a young man, was a massive Michael Jackson fan. And Michael Jackson was coming to Adelaide, Australia, the same day, I believe, of Mark's grade eight graduation. And Mark had a plan to go to the hotel where Michael Jackson was staying. Michael Jackson was going to come out and make an appearance and sign some autographs and shake some hands. Um, however, there was some sort of scheduling conflict with Mark's graduation, and so Mark ended up quite late. And the other piece of this, Mark had been outfitted with a tuxedo for the graduation that he was wearing at this point. So his dad had, had driven him to the tuxedo shop, outfitted Mark with a tuxedo, which I imagine to be white, because of course it would be. And then in driving downtown to, to this sort of Michael Jackson meet and greet, they'd gotten stuck in traffic and they were going to be late. So Mark's dad let him out of the car to run and go and meet Michael Jackson. And Mark's dad was going to sort of drive around back of the hotel and meet him out there afterward. Um, Mark got to the hotel. He was late. Michael Jackson's already gone. So Mark kind of shot down the alleyway beside the hotel to meet his dad out back. And there, as a prototypical white limousine with that sort of boomerang-shaped antenna on the back sitting between a couple of dumpsters, Mark came face-to-face with Michael Jackson talking on a cell phone. And Mark's reaction upon coming face-to-face with his hero was to uh, break into Billie Jean. Mark sings the entirety of Billie Jean while Michael Jackson sort of puts his call on hold and listens to Mark sing the song. And Mark uh, is congratulated by Michael Jackson. He says something, I'm not going to do my Michael Jackson voice because it's it's, uh, embarrassing, but uh, basically something along the lines of, that was amazing, you know, kid, keep it up. You're going to be a star one day. (laughs) How did I do, Mark? Um, it's, it's quite embellished. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the formal is definitely correct. My dad didn't have any involvement. <laughs> right. So you've invented a father figure. And that's not all he invented. Actually, Pasha got Mark's story so wrong... It's better if Mark just retells the whole thing. It's interesting to say it was a white tuxedo, like the smooth criminal tuxedo I actually wore to another formal. But on this formal, I was wearing a pink sparkly uh, (laughs) sequins jacket. But my shoe uh, had fallen out of my bag. 
And so the whole problem with trying to get to the hotel to meet Michael Jackson is I couldn't find this expensive shoe. And uh, I went into the hotel where the graduation was at, which was at the same hotel that Michael Jackson was staying. So I had actually clearance to be in that hotel for you. But so had a whole other other people who were waiting in the hotel foyer, which was packed with people. And so I stood there with them behind like a barricade. And then when he came out, so he came out of the lift straight past us and everyone's going crazy. And as he was near me, that's when I pulled out, you're right, Billie Jean. Billie Jean is not my lover. To which everyone just went, shut up, shut up, you're going to scare him, stop it. And uh, rightfully so, he went nowhere near me and just sort of boycotted me and went to everyone else and got everyone else's signatures and things. And then I was just like beside myself because I was like, oh, great. That was my one time I was going to get to actually meet my idol and I've just blown it. And I was like, okay, there's got to be one more chance, going to be one more chance. So I just yelled out, Michael! I love you! And like the loudest that anyone has ever shouted that sentence. And uh, he just nodded to the security guard. So he didn't even want to go near me. <laughs> so the security guard actually grabbed my book, gave it to Michael. He signed it. I got it back and then I was just ballistic. And like I just... I just ran through the city of Adelaide just showing complete strangers my autograph. And then I swear and this is the unbelievable part of the story i turned around and saw my shoe lying in the middle of the road and i got my shoe and uh went to the graduation with my autograph that story is so different from the one that i told and have been telling for a long time while all this is happening, I'm in the studio with Pasha, watching him as he hears Mark's story. And the only way to describe Pasha's face at this moment is agog. Especially at the end when he realizes that in reality, Mark got no love from the King of Pop. The key part of your version of Mark's story is that he gets Michael's approval at the end. Yeah. And the key part... I like of... to think it's what set Mark on his path to a career in the entertainment business, whereas your <laughs> story is more shameful. Yeah, yeah, because even the signature looks really rushed. Right. Like, to the point where I've showed people, are you sure that's his signature? <laughs> right. Just like, yeah, because it just, it's just an M with a squiggle. Right. No, I can't believe how different those are. The pink jacket and the shoe <laughs> and the crowd telling you to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really different story. Well, I guess when you tell a story, like each time you retell it, it's like kind of taking it, drawing a copy of it, isn't it? It's yeah. Like it becomes slightly more fuzzy. Yeah. That's what they say, you know, memory is, it's like re-recording over a tape. Every time we recall mm. it, we sort of make a new version of it. So I would imagine with someone else's memory, it's maybe even more so. So for accuracy, Pasha gets what, a 2.5 out of 10? But for these guys, there's more to it than that. I mean, do you like my version? I would prefer if your version was the real version. This gets us to something interesting. Okay, remember the original parameters of the trade. Pasha and Mark weren't supposed to just start telling each other's stories. They were supposed to stop telling their own stories. Well, that didn't happen. I have a quite a tumultuous 
relationship with my story that I told you. So it's almost as if I'd forgotten that that was the deal and I told the story and then bad things happened. So my karma kind of came and bit me because I dared to tell my story. For real? Yeah. What happened? Totally. You know, when it happened, when the actual story happened, I was a teenager and I just remember always telling it at parties. Like it was a huge part of like my identity. You know what I mean? I remember uh-huh. just I couldn't go to a party without people going, oh, tell that story, tell that story. And I'd like, uh-huh. you know, almost do that James Brown thing of going, <laughs> no, I can't tell it. I can't tell it. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually go, all right, all right. And then suddenly there'd be this big group of people like... I'm not exaggerating. Like, I remember someone made a poster instead of Michael Jackson World Tour. It said Michael Jackson Story World Tour. And all the tour dates were all the parties that he'd heard me tell this story at. That's amazing. And I got into stand-up and then I was doing this set. I'd only been doing it for about a year and it was going really well. And I thought, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out this story. And it just died. Like, not a single person reacted or laughed. I had the exact same experience with my Kentucky Fried Chicken story. I I was on a second or third date with this woman and uh, I thought it was a kind of go-to, here's something hilarious about me. And I told her that story and it was, that story usually gets a pretty good laugh and it was just dead air. And she looked at me and she said, are you just trying to test me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, I wasn't trying to test her. I just thought it was funny. Another thing to remember, at the time of the swap, these were their favorite stories about themselves. These were the stories that they were using to form their identities, to tell each other who they were. But after 19 years, they don't fit anymore. It's almost like your relationship with your own story and your own self sort of changes over the years. Because now I look back at that story and I'm slightly embarrassed by it. That person back then was, you know, like a bit desperate and a bit corny and I don't there's particular parts of that story I get up to and I'm embarrassed and I kind of get a bit of a pang of anxiety. So I don't like telling the story. Yeah. I feel the same way. Like I, I feel like wow. I, I kind of relied on a constant self-deprecation and humor and that the laughs that I was hoping to generate were kind of laughs at me. And I think it kind of got packaged into this persona of this hapless loser that I've invented for myself that felt kind of humble, but wasn't. It was just kind of a way to hide behind something. So I think I got away right. from telling that story and uh, and started to feel kind of bad when I, when I brought it up. So what are you going to do with each other's stories now? Will you change how you tell Mark's I mean, story? I don't know. That's a really good question. I like, I like my version. I like your version <laughs> too. It's just my version has been the one that I'm so attached to. And like, I really like in my head, because we haven't talked since we hung out in 1999, uh, Mm. who you are to me is this fictional version (laughs) that your, your career in the entertainment industry was ushered in by this moment with Michael Jackson. Perhaps it still was. It was just for different reasons. Like it was more like, well, I'll show you Michael. You're going to keep telling Uh, I think I'll, I will now tell this story of how Mark and I 10 years later reconnected compared the stories and then i'm going to present the two stories and maybe ask people which one they prefer and not tell them which (laughs) one is real and which one is invented there is one last detail to all this possibly my favorite thing about this story what they remember or what they've changed or in pasha's case what he outright invented. 
They offer us a bit of a window into who Mark and Pasha are. Okay, Mark got Pasha's story essentially right, right? And the part he nailed, which was also the part that Pasha forgot, was that one-liner from the security guard about it not being very fast food. And, as you know, Mark's a stand-up comedian. So nailing lines like that pays his rent. I said at the beginning of this episode that Pasha is a writer, but I left something out. Pasha is predominantly a fiction writer. A successful one, too. He's won a Trillium Award for his fiction, other winners being Margaret Atwood and Alice Munro. So him effectively rewriting Mark's story, it kind of makes sense. And listen to this. Even after Pasha found out that he got most of the facts of Mark's story wrong, Pasha argues that his version still gets at the truth of who Mark is, even if he's using different details to do it. Essentially, you know, I'm getting at the same enthusiasm. You're kind of a guy who's just, as far as I remember, like who just kind of goes for it and doesn't really care what other people think about him, which is something I always admired about Mark. And, you know, someone who's theatrical and uh, outgoing and fun and kind of a performer. And I think all those things are true about you, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I, I feel like I'm much more subtle now. You know, like, well, I mean, come on. We were 20. Like, I, yeah. God, hope so. I'm more subtle now. Like, I was a monster <laughs> when I was 20 years old. I wouldn't yeah, put up that's... posters about myself now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's at the time, I think that is, that's pretty accurate analysis, I think. Pasha may have gotten the facts wrong, but in a sense, he got the person right. <laughs> that's what I do. I'm a fiction writer. I'm an, uh, yeah. Mark Trenwith, Pasha Mala. That doc was produced by me, AC Rowe, with Jennifer Warren. It was originally broadcast in January of 2018. On our website, you can see photos of Mark in both the sparkly pink tuxedo he was wearing the day he met Michael Jackson and the white tuxedo Pasha thought he was wearing. Because who doesn't need more than one absurdly loud tuxedo? He does look stellar, though. You can find those photos on our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Mark Apollonio, Sherry Okeke, and me. Our digital producer is Althea Manassin. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. Special thanks this week to Ben Shannon, Tom Howell, and Craig Desson. Before you go, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to rate and review us. And if you hated it, please don't. (laughs) I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.